Well, we are in our fourth week of a series on early church history. Um, we are this week going to be looking at what, what I'm entitled the defense of the faith. Um, we're going to be looking at some of the noteworthy apologists. Next week, we'll look at um, the deposit of the faith, uh, some of the teachers, early teachers of the church. And um, so as, you're, as we move through this, you'll notice that I'm leaving a lot of people out um, who would be considered apologists, and I'm not doing that. I am doing it intentionally, but uh, it's for a reason. Um, a, lot of these, a lot of the men who were teachers of the early church were also apologists, and so some of the men I'll look, we'll look at next week. Um, this week we'll look at in two, two um, apologists in particular. But I wanted to begin by asking a question uh, just to get us thinking about um, apologetics. Even before we get into the early church and the, the situations they dealt with, which we, we started looking at last week when we were looking at the persecutions. Um, so uh, the question that I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask the question, then we're going to pray, and then I'll let you answer the question. So <clears throat> the question I want to ask this morning as we begin is, what kinds of objections do we see today against Christianity, or what type of critiques? In other words, we're doing apologetics today. What are the things we have to deal with apologetically today? So that's the question. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for um, your hand of providence. Lord, we, we know that the church today is where ex exactly where you want her to be. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the example of the men we're going to look at today and uh, to see their courage, their faith. And uh, Father, I pray that you would, uh, through them, give us courage, just seeing their example, seeing how faithful you are. Um, Lord, I, I just ask that you would um, help us to have courage to engage our culture today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what kinds of critiques do we see against Christianity today? What do y'all... Just you can raise your hand. You can, yes, sir. Yeah. So the Bible is written by men. Um, it's irrelevant for today because it because of how old it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, interesting uh, and true. Uh, the Christian ethic on love is bigoted, uh, narrow-minded, and lacks love. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no, there's no universal truth. Your, that's your truth. That's fine for you. It's not my truth. Good. Yeah. Yeah, so one common objection is the Bible's full of errors. It can't be trusted. Yes, ma'am. If God is love, why would he send anyone to hell? Yes, Larry. Yeah, so if God is good, why does he allow evil? How do, you, how do we explain as Christians, how do we explain the existence of evil? Okay, Any, anything else? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, again, just and I'm, I'm answering these for the for the recording. Um, I mean, I'm not answering them. <laughs> I'm repeating them. Uh, so uh, yeah, the whole concept of God is love. Um, he wouldn't do certain things. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a God of their own imagination that he's loving. And Yes, sir? Oppositions of science. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, how do we, how do we uh, fit Christianity in the, a popular idea of science today? Um, good. Very good. So, obviously, as Christians, we, are, we live in the culture, right? Um, and we have to engage the culture. And, and, and when we think about all of these objections, you can, you can sort of classify them in, in certain respects. And, and just in my introduction, I wanted to kind of think about, now I'm going to take us back to the early church. We're going to look at some of the things that they dealt with. A lot of overlap, a lot of similarities to the things that we deal with today. And yet, some different things. I think uh, some of the things are probably a little bit surprising to us to hear. Um, like, for example, the idea that Christians are unloving in their sexual ethic or how they, how they view things um, would, not been, would not have been an issue in the early church. In fact, it was just the opposite. So, last week, when we were looking at persecution, I, I really kind of focused on more of the political view of Christianity and the political critique of Christianity. In other words, you had Christians who were standing before emperors. It was more the church and the state last week. Um, I did mention last week that uh, some of the persecution, or a lot of the persecution actually was more on the popular level, um, but, but we were focused more on the political. And the, typically, politically, back then, you had two claims that the claim of atheism, that Christians were atheists because they didn't worship the gods, and then obstinacy or stubbornness whenever they were asked by a Roman emperor to do certain things, to worship the god, to offer incense, they refused to do it. But you also had popular critiques of Christianity like we would today. Some of the things that you, you guys mentioned this morning were popular critiques, um, and back in the, in the uh, early church, uh, two of the main things that were popularly criti- critiques of Christianity were they were antisocial. And you have to think about this in context of the Roman uh, society. Um, in Roman society, what made things challenging for the early church was everything was interwoven. And really, you could make the argument that it's interwoven today. We just don't necessarily see the connection. But in the early church... To live as a citizen of Rome was to be religious, right? It was to worship the gods of Rome, to worship the emperor. And so there was this, uh, they really didn't have a distinction between church and state back then. It was, everything was together. And so at a popular level, uh, Christians were called antisocial, and mostly because they had secret meetings. Uh, Christians, when they met, it was usually in secret for fear of persecution, um, but also, they didn't, fe- they didn't participate in the festivals. Uh, again, everything in Roman society was connected to the worship of the pagan gods. And so when they had celebrations, when they had festivals, 
uh, Christians would abstain from participating because of the religious connotations and, and a- active religious uh, things that they had to perform to be a part of it. Incidentally, uh, early on, Christians would not serve in the military for this same reason. Um, because to be in the military, you had to pay homage to the emperor and you had to worship the Roman gods uh, because that was seen as um, being patriotic. Uh, if you want to be patriotic, you need to worship the Roman gods, you need to pay homage and worship the emperor. Um, you, what you did have, however, I will make this point, because <clears throat> you did have Christians in the military, but it was usually because they converted to Christianity after already being in the military. Um, so, so first popular critique was they were antisocial. The second popular critique was that Christianity just attracted the lower classes. Um, that what you saw in Christianity, you didn't see any one of the social elites in Christianity, at least early on. You start, you see that change uh, a little bit later into the fourth century. But early on, uh, Christianity was predominantly made up of people from the lower classes. Um, And this should be no surprise. I wanted to read you a couple of passages. Um, Obviously, one from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. He writes this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. So even as Paul is writing the book of Corinthians um, back in the early, early church, in the apostolic church, you, you had the same issue. Paul points out that not many of those who came to faith were of noble birth. They were not wise by world standards. And that doesn't mean that everyone, obviously you did have examples of people who were of noble birth and wise and by the world standards. But generally speaking, the church was made up of lower classes. Um, you get an example of this also in James 2.5, but I won't, I won't go there. So today we're going to look at primarily philosophical objections because this is where the apologists come in. Um, so you had this time when Christian persecution is um, is really growing. It's the first two, three centuries you had um, a Christian persecution that ebbed and flowed, but it sometimes was very severe. But generally, throughout the population, Christianity was being persecuted. Um, and so Christian apologists really kind of was a reaction to this. It justified Christianity, not only on a popular level. So you had apologists who were answering the popular questions. You had apologists who were answering the philosophical, I mean, the political questions, uh, but primarily they focused more on the philosophical questions. Again, in Rome, philosophy and religion were hand in hand. Two, two, two things of the, two of the same thing, two sides of the same coin, I guess I should say. Uh, some philosophical objections. Uh, the first one is related to uh, the popular attracted lower classes. The first philosophical objection is that Christianity is for the simple-minded. Um, you remember uh, last week, I believe, I quoted Celsus, um, who said that basically Christianity was for women and children and slaves. Um, and so Christianity is for the simple-minded, no one who is well-educated, uh, 
accepts Christianity or, or converts to Christianity, and so therefore uh, it cannot be true. Secondly, uh, and this one may be surprising, Christians are immoral people. Um, this was largely a misunderstanding of Christianity. Again, a lot of the Christian meetings were more private. Um, because of persecution, they didn't publicize their meetings. They didn't uh, openly talk about what they did. But what, the, what people outside the church saw was that here's a group of people. They refer to each other as brother and sister, even though they're not physically brother and sister. They greet each other with a holy kiss. And they hold what they call love feasts. And so you can imagine in the Roman mind um, what conclusion they would come to about this group of people who met secretively. And so they just assumed that Christianity was made up of immoral people. The third uh, philosophical objection is that Christianity held to foolish beliefs. This was probably uh, the one that, that most... Uh, philosophers of the day would really point to. Christianity holds the beliefs that can't be true from a Roman perspective. You can't have the virgin birth. Um, that makes no sense, and so you would have philosophers who would, who would come up with rationalizations for the virgin birth. We still see this today, right? Um, really, uh, this third philosophical objection, we see all of these today. Um, they also, Christianity also held to the resurrection of the body. For the uh, Roman philosopher, this was the height of foolishness um, because a lot of Roman philosophy saw the physical as being bondage. And so why would you have a resurrection of the physical body? That made no sense to them. They were trying to escape the physical. Um, but not only that, why would you look for a world that's uncertain when you know the world you're living in is certain? The incarnation of Christ was also something they mocked. Um, why would God take on a physical form? Um, again, these are all things that Roman philosophers could not accept uh, intellectually. Uh, not to mention they believed in miracles. Christians believe in miracles. The fourth philosophical objection was that Christianity was a novelty. Um, and basically what they're saying here is this is new. Um, it can't be true because it's new. So let's look at, we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at uh, two early apologies. Um, there were many apologists at, during this time. I'm, I'm focusing on two this week, again, partly because I'm going to look at some of the other apologists next week when we look at some of the teachers of the faith. Uh, but I'm looking at these two, Justin Martyr and the the right an anonymous writer to a letter uh, of a letter, sorry, um, that we're going to look at today, mainly because of their importance in the early church. Uh, Justin Martyr is considered to be one of the greatest thinkers of the second century, and so a lot of his work, he wasn't just a, an apologist, but that's a lot of what he's remembered for as being an apologist, and a lot of his notable works are, come out of his apologies that he wrote. Uh, we're going to look a little bit at Justin Martyr, and then we're going to look at the letter of Diognetes. Um, this was a letter we don't know much about the author, um, but we have parts of the letter, and it is considered to be uh, one of the uh, most masterfully written 
um, apologies of the second century. So we're going to take some time. I'm actually going to spend a lot of time on this. We're going to actually look at its argument. Um, so <clears throat> let's start with Justin Martyr. Uh, again, Justin Martyr is a well-known apologist of the second century. He was very well educated. Uh, Justin studied Greek philosophy. He was searching for the truth. Um, he studied many uh, uh, of the philosophers, Greek philosophers, um, and he studied, for example, uh, Stoist. He studied uh, Plato. He studied a, a, a wide range of Greek philosophies uh, because he's searching for truth. What is truth? Uh, Justin would study these things, and when he studied them, he never found satisfaction. He never found really what he was looking for. His heart was always still searching for what is truth. Uh, it was about, that, about uh, 130 A.D. that he was converted, um, and he describes his conversion this way. He says, a fire was, kindled, was suddenly kindled in my soul. I fell in love with the, with the prophets, these men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all their works and found that this philosophy alone was true and profitable. And so Justin comes to a point in his life, he studied these worldly philosophies, and they all leave him longing for more, his heart still restless. Uh, and then suddenly he hears the gospel, and he describes it as a fire suddenly kindled in my soul. Many of us could probably share that same testimony. Um, you have an experience where you hear the gospel or you're reading the word and all of a sudden a fire's kindled. And that's what happened to Justin. Uh, Gonzalez points out, uh, he writes this about Justin. He says, Justin did not cease being a philosopher, but rather took upon himself the task of doing Christian philosophy. A major part of the task, as he saw it, was to show and explain the connection between Christianity and classical wisdom. So he would go on, uh, Justin would go on after he became a Christian. Again, he's, he's still uh, studying, he's still a philosopher, um, and he starts a school in Rome. I mentioned this last time, and it's called the School of True Philosophy. He teaches Christianity He's also debating in Rome with, with uh, other philosophers. Again, we pointed out last time that's what got him in trouble, and he was eventually martyred because he beat one of the leading philosophers in Rome in a, in a debate. And many think that philosopher accused him of being a Christian at that point, and he was eventually uh, martyred. Um, he was a gifted apologist and, and, and a gifted debater. We, we know that just from the history that we have of him. Um, he writes three things that we, he's most remembered for. We're going to look at two of them. Uh, the one that we're not looking at is against Typho, and, and that is really an apology um, against Judaism. Typho is a Jew, and so Justin's writing to defend Christianity against Jewish claims. But really, for our purposes today, we're going to look at the first and second apology, not look at them. We're just going to talk about them. Uh, the first apology was published in 155, and really in the first apology, he's writing to Antonius Pius, and he's trying to explain that Christianity is not a threat to the state. Um, one of the things that emperors felt like was that here is a group of people, you think about their leader, or Jesus, was a criminal, right? And from the Roman perspective, he died as a criminal. And so you have these people worshiping Jesus, and so they, they were seen as a subversive group. 
so in his first apology, he writes to the emperor. Um, he argues that Christianity is not a threat to the state. He also argues that Christianity should be treated as a legal religion. Um, and so, again, he's trying to appeal to this emperor. Um, he is not successful in convincing Antonius Pius, but nonetheless, also I think from the first apology we have um, one of the earliest examples of how church and the early church functioned, um, and I th it's out of the first apology. The second apology was published in 161, and it was written mainly for Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor at that time, and it attempted to show that Christianity was truly rational. Um, again, you'll remember from last week, Marcus Aurelius um, was a philosophical, one of the only really philosophical rulers of the Roman Empire. Uh, he was a gifted writer. Again, his meditations are seen as literary masterpieces. And so Marcus Aurelius kind of fancied himself as being a, a philosopher. And so Justin wrote and basically tried to convince him that Christianity was truly rational. Um, one of the things that's unique about, not unique about Justin, one of the things that, that Justin Martyr saw was that there were um, some key points in, in, in Roman philosophy or Greek philosophy that were kind of starting points that had in common with Christianity. Um, and so he would take these points of contact and try to develop and show the connection between the two. Um, for example, uh, you saw in, in Christian philosophy, uh, I'm sorry, in pagan philosophy, you saw the idea of a supreme being. Um, Plato, Socrates, they had this concept of a supreme being. Life beyond physical death, again, they, they recognize that, that death is not the end, that there is something beyond that. And so what Justin kind of speculated was there's this universal reason that underlines all reality. Um, and if you're familiar with Greek philosophy, you may be familiar with the term a priori knowledge. And that's sort of the same idea. There is this underlying re, uh, truth that undergirds all of reality. And the mind can grasp certain, grasp certain truths because of this. Justin called this the logos. Um, for Justin, logos meant word. Uh, obviously, for the Christian, logos meant Christ. You know, we get that from the Gospel of John. But for Justin, he saw this word as a connecting point between Greek philosophy because they use the word logos as well because it not only meant word, but it also meant reason. And so uh, you had this understanding of logos as a universal region, uh, reason. Sorry, um, And for Justin, that was Christ. I mean, he believed that Jesus was this universal reality that undergirded all truth. And so he probably wouldn't put it this way, but think about it in terms of like kind of instinctive knowledge. And now again, Justin probably wouldn't put it this way, but the idea is something like this. Most people recognize that two plus two is four. At least we used to. Um, <laughs> two plus two is four. I was being challenged today. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, most people recognize that because of, Justin would argue, because of this universal reason, because Christ is 
is, is the one who upholds the universe. And so um, people recognize that because they have this innate knowledge that God has given to them. Um, so this is Justin's view. And so again, he saw a connection between Greek philosophy and Christianity, and he tried to capitalize on that as far as his uh, apologetics goes. Now, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop there. Next week, we'll look briefly at how that idea gets developed. Um, you have Clement of Alexandria who would take this concept and, and, and build on it. Uh, and then you would also have a response to that in Tertullian. Uh, again, we'll look at that a little bit next week. So after he writes his second apology, Justin is martyred in 165. And so that is Justin Martyr. Secondly, uh, of one of the other apologists that I was talking about was the Epistle of Dagnetus. This was written uh, sometime in the second century. We don't have an exact date. Um, and I actually found two different sources that had one said early in the second century and one said later. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm going with early uh, because that was Gonzalez. I don't know, uh, but sometime in the second century, this letter was written. It is a letter from a Christian apologist to an unbeliever, a pagan philosopher. And this pagan philosopher has questions about Christianity. He's open to Christianity. And so the, the anonymous author writes this letter to him. The person he's writing to is a man called Diognetus. We don't know much about him other than his name. Uh, what we do know about the author is mostly from the style and the way he writes. Uh, we know that it's written in elegant Greek and can safely assume that he probably had classical training. Uh, he, again, it seems like he possessed considerable literary skill and style. Um, and so most people recognize this letter as a masterpiece of early apologetics. In fact, I have a quote but from Avery Dulles. Uh, he wrote a book called The History of Apologetics. He describes it as the pearl of early Christian apologies. So we're going to take some time looking at this. I actually have sections I'm going to read to you. Um, what are the issues? Well, the introduction of this letter gives us the questions that Diognetus was struggling with that he wanted answers to. And he writes in his introduction, the author writes this, I have noticed, most excellent Diognetus, the deep interest you have, in, uh, have been showing in Christianity and the close and careful inquiries you have been making about it. You would like to know what God the Christians believe in and what sort of worship they practice which enables them to set so little store by this world and even make light of death itself. Since they reject deities revered by the Greeks, no less than they disdain the superstitions professed by the Jews, you are curious, too, about the warm fraternal affection they all feel for one another. Also, you are puzzled as to why this new race of men, or at least this novel manner of life, has only come into our lives recently instead of much earlier. So, three things. Who is God? Who is this God that you Christians worship? And how is he different from our gods? How is he different from the pagan gods that we worship? Secondly, why do Christians love like they do? Um, and in context of Rome, you have to understand that Christians, 
one, I think one person said, I think, I think you said that the Christians today, one criticism is that we're not loving, at least in our view of, of the sexual ethic that we hold. In the early church, Christians were seen, what really stood out to people was how much they loved one another. And in context of the Roman society, you can easily see how they stood out. Paul gives an example of this, I think, in Titus 3. Um, so if you would turn to Titus quickly. Well, actually, let me hold that till I get to till I get to when he's dealing with what Christians. Why do they love like they do? Uh, for here, let me just say that uh, the Christian community was seen uh, as really lights and darkness. They stood out. They were bright because of their love. And thirdly, the third question that Diognetus has is, if Christianity is true, why is it only a recent development? Again, back to the novelty. So, uh, interestingly, the author ends the introduction this way. I pray God, the author of both our speech and hearing, to grant me such use of my tongue that you may derive the fullest benefit from listening to me. And to you, such use of your ears that I may have no cause to regret having spoken. Interesting, the author of this letter to Diognetus um, ends his introduction where he points out the things that Diognetus is wrestling with, the questions that he has, and he ends it by saying, it's a prayer, basically, for his conversion. Um, One of the things that uh, Michael Haken points out in Rediscovering the Church Fathers is that this this idea that, and you're going to see this a lot in this letter, uh, this idea that no one can come to to God on their own. Um, God must be involved in conversion. And so you have this early apologist uh, acknowledging that in the simple fact that he prays. I pray that God would use my mouth, and I pray that God would open your ears so that you would hear and that I would communicate clearly the gospel. And so uh, you see this again and again. Uh, he's basically uh, sees or assumes that God has to give Diognetes the ability to believe. Um, no one can come to Christian truth by reason alone. And even though he's making a reasoned argument, he begins by praying, God, open this guy's ears. Help me to communicate in a way in recognition of God's sovereignty over this process. So, the argument. The first thing the writer does is he critiques pagan religion and worldview. Um, really, as, you, as we read through this, as I read this to you, part of this, you're going you're gonna to recognize um, a lot of things. I'm, I want to point out some stuff. He, this guy knew his Bible. A lot of what he says sounds just like Paul, um, and we'll see that. Um, so again, he at first starts by really attacking pagan religion, um, the fact that uh, the gods that they worship aren't real. Um, and it really, I want to read you a passage from 1 Corinthians. I need to hold my spot here. Hang on. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes this. Again, Paul sees the same thing 
that the, the author of this letter sees in our... Let me put it the other way. The author of this letter sees the same thing Paul sees uh, with the Roman gods. Paul writes this, and this is re- referring when Paul's talking about the food that's offered to idols, and, the, and there's kind of a, 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 what do we do in the church? Some people don't have a problem with eating food offered to idols. Some people do. Well, Paul says this in verse 4, and, and I think it's a recognition of the pagan gods as being false. Therefore, he says, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, I think it's a direct reference to Greek uh, religion, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all, are, from whom all things and for whom all we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all, are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul recognizes that these pagan gods are nothing. They're, they are the product of the human imagination. Uh, they don't exist. There's only one God, and only He exists. Um, again, they are the art and the imagination of man. So... Here's what the author of this letter writes regarding the, the, the Roman gods. Take a good look with your intelligence, not, with, not just with your eyes, at the forms and substance of those objects which you call gods and hold to be divine. Is this one here, for, for instance, anything other than a block of stone, identical in kind with the flagstones we tread under our feet? Notice what he does with each of these. It's like, this is something you're worshiping, and yet the same thing is used for, we're just walking on it. Is not that one made out of brass, of no finer quality than the common utensils that are manufactured for our everyday use? A third of wood already rotting into decay? A fourth of silver needing someone to keep an eye on it all the time? For fear of thieves, your gods have to be guarded. They have to be protected. Uh, and I'm not sure what he means by back to the, uh, the brass uh, for everyday use. Um, I'm not sure what that means, but he's going to talk about another one here that, uh, that is interesting to me. It says, a fifth of iron pitted all over with rust, and a sixth no better looking earthenware than the articles they turn out for the humblest domestic purposes. Is not every single one of these made of materials that are perishable? Was not one made by, uh, was not one made by a stone cutter, another by a brass founder, a third by a silversmith, a fourth by a potter? And up to the moment when the skill of those craftsmen gave them their present forms, was it not just as practicable? Indeed, it is not just as practical even now for every one of them to have been made into something quite different. In a word, they are not, one and all, nothing but dumb, blind, lifeless things without sense, without movement, rotting and decaying. Take your gods and put them together, and what you have are items that were man-made. They were created by man, I think that's important, and they're decaying and rotting. He goes on, do you really call these things gods and really do service to them? Yes, indeed you do. You worship them and you end up becoming like them. 
Is it not because we as Christians refuse to acknowledge their divinity that you dislike us so? Who is God? Um, One of the things he sees uh, the Romans and their worship, he really kind of sees them as being in bondage to these false gods, these gods that they've created with their own hands. It reminds me of of Paul when he's um, in Acts 5 on Mars Hill. The author goes on to point out that Christians are not in bondage to such gods, and in fact, um, they are persecuted because they recognize them for what they are. Um, after pointing out the problems with Diognetus's religion, now he's going to turn to the truth claims of Christianity and, and answer some of the questions that he has. <clears throat> So, the first question, who is the God of the Christians? The author starts by arguing that God is not a product of human thought or philosophy. In stark contrast to the Roman gods, the false gods, the God of Christians was not made by man's hands or man's imagination. He's no product of human thought. He writes this, the thing that they guard, Christians, the thing that Christians guard so jealously is no product of mortal thinking. And what has been committed to them is the stewardship of no human mystery. The Almighty Himself, the Creator of the universe, the God whom no eye can discern, has sent down His very own truth from heaven, His own holy and incomprehensible word to plant it among men and to ground it into their hearts, or in their hearts. Again, back to the idea that we cannot, we can only know God if He reveals Himself. So this self-revelation of God, how do we know who God is? Well, it's not by looking at the things that man makes as God, but it's by seeing the revelation of God. God must reveal himself. If man is going to know God, he must have a revelation. And the revelation that he points to is the Son of God, is Jesus. Um, Hebrews 1 talks about the fact that in in ages past God revealed himself, but today he's revealed himself through his son. And it's sort of the line of thought that he has here. God has not sent, he goes on, to mankind some servant of his, some angel or prince. It is no other than the maker himself, by whose agency God made the heavens, set the seas uh, their bounds, and by whom the sun is assigned its limits." Um, let me skip down a little bit because I'm running out of time. He is the ordainer, the disposer, the ruler of all things, the ruler of heaven and all that heaven holds, of the earth and all that's in the earth, the sea and every creature therein, of fires, of air and the abyss. Again, for the Roman mind, he's hearing these things that represent their gods. What's he saying? All of those things that you find deity in, because the Romans were polytheists, uh, they see God everywhere in fire, and, and so he's ref- referencing these things that would have triggered in the Roman mind, well, that, that's my God, and he's saying, Jesus made all of those things. Diognetus asks, who is God? Well, God reveals himself is the answer. God reveals himself in his incarnate son. Um, Let me. Thirdly, or the next question that he asks, and I'm gonna he and he 
mentions the questions that Diognetus has, and, and, and he lists them in a certain order, but then he changes the order in his, in his, when he's writing. So he answers the antiquity of, Christ, of Christianity next. Uh, again, a common objection in Rome was that Christianity is a new thing, it can't be true. Um, and it was because in Rome they had this rich history going back hundreds and hundreds of years, and if anything was true, they had to know about it. And so here there's this Christian truth that's new. How can this be true? I mean, you guys, you, this is a relatively new, in the, in, the, in the scope of history, Christianity is new, and it started when with the church started with Jesus, and so it can't possibly be true. Well, most apologists took the line of arguing that Christianity is not true. In fact, Christianity was predicted in the Old Testament, and so there is this um, continuation of, in a way. Uh, Christianity is rooted in the, the religion of Judaism, and so it predates the Greek and Roman philosophers and their gods. And so it's not a new thing, is what most apologists argue. Uh, the author of this letter does not take this approach. He argues that God revealed his plan of salvation to no one but the Son. And at the proper time, when man had become conscious of his inability to, um, to gain heaven, to be made right with God, when man became conscious of his, his uh, sinful nature, then God sent his Son. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave this out because I am running out of time and I apologize. Actually, no, I'm not because this is really good. If I have to leave something else out, I will. Again, you're going to hear Romans in this. He says, instead of hating us and rejecting us and remembering our wickedness against us, talking about God, he showed how long-suffering he is. He bore with us and in pity he took our sins upon himself and gave his own son as a ransom for us. The holy for the wicked, the sinless for sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything except his righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? In whom could we, in our lawlessness and ungodliness, have been made holy? But in the Son of God alone, O oh, sweet exchange, again, that's Paul, right? O oh, sweet exchange. Oh, how unsearchable working, our oh, benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of multitudes should, should thus be hidden in the one righteous, in the one righteous, and the righteousness of one should justify the countless wicked. In times past, he convinced us that our human nature by itself lacked the power of attaining to life. Today, he reveals to us a Savior who has power to save even the powerless. The purpose behind both of these acts is that we should believe in his goodness and should look upon him as our nourisher, father, teacher, counselor, healer, wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, and life, and have no anxiety about our clothing and food. So he starts off, like you see often in Paul, he starts off with theology and ends up in doxology. Here is this great God. Look at our destitute, destitute position that we're in because of sin. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We're powerless. And at the proper time, God sends His Son to do the impossible, the unthinkable. 
And then he goes into praising God. Christian, uh, so again, he answers the question of the newness of Christianity. He says, it's not new, you just didn't know about it. Um, God had a plan, uh, but he waited to the right time to bring forth his plan. The last question is Christian love. Uh, He basically responds that Christian love uh, is a witness to Christianity's truthfulness. Again, uh, uh, Titus 3.3, I'm going to go back to that. Paul kind of describes the Roman, what would have been common in Rome at this point. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. So again, before Christ, we're slaves of various passions and pleasures. We're passing our day in what? Malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That is life without Christ. Wherever you look, we may mask it in certain ways, but that's life without Christ. And, and so, what Paul is pointing out here is that the, the, human, the human condition being sinful is such that we hate everybody else and we love ourselves. That's who we are. And yet in light of this, and the Roman society really manifested this approach to life, and in light of this, Christians loved one another. They sacrificed for one another. They gave of their own goods for one another. They welcomed strangers into their homes. Um, Some of the examples of this uh, was that Christians looked out for the helpless in society. One One of the actual complaints against Christianity was one of the things was an expression of Christian love. That, that they, they basically brought in lower-class people or, or the helpless in society to help them. One example is, he writes this, actually in, in this, the letter to Diognetus, he writes, Christians marry and beget children, though they do not expose their infants. It's an interesting statement. Uh, well, he's referring to exposing their infants was a common practice in ancient Rome. It was a form of abortion. Um, and what, what would happen is, if you were wealthy, you didn't want to spread your wealth among too many heirs. And so, you would, when a child was born, they would leave it outside. They would expose it to the elements, and it would end up dying. Christians, on the other hand, would take these babies and raise them. And so, not only did Christians not expose their infants, but they actually brought in these, these exposed kids or babies, and they would uh, raise them as their own. Uh, again, uh, Daniel Haken points out that early Christian authors consistently saw the frequent recourse to abortion. It's interesting that you had abortion back in Rome by women in the Greco-Roman world as a violation of the scriptural prohibition against murder. Uh, again, Christians' response to this, they didn't do it, and they helped bring those, help those babies, those helpless babies, and bring them into their homes. Not only that, but even when Christians were persecuted, they responded in love. And he, I'll, I'll end with this quote. He says, They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned. Yet by suffering death, they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich. Lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. Again, do you hear the refrain of Paul? Um, They are dishonored, yet made glorious in their very dishonor, slandered, yet vindicated. They repay 
calumny with blessings and abuse with courtesy. Um, you persecute a Christian, they respond in love. Christians respond in love to the helpless in society, and most of all, they respond in love to one another. And so they stood out in the context of the Roman culture and the Roman world um, really as bright lights, so much so that this Diognetus was curious, how can you love? The writer of this basically says we love because God first loved us. We love as an outflow of what Christ has done for us. And so you put us in any situation, whether it's persecution or whether it's just the church functioning and doing life together, or whether it's related to the helpless in society, we respond in love as Christians because God loved us when we were helpless, when we were destitute. Um, and so we respond in love toward other people. Um, again, I, um, not being able to read Greek, I can't appreciate the, the quality of this letter, but I can certainly appreciate the quality of the arguments. Um, and hopefully it gives us courage again and uh, a boldness in responding to those around us because people have questions. People have questions about Christianity uh, at your workplace. Uh, people have questions about Christianity at the grocery store you go to. Um, and let's start engaging those questions. Let's become apologists um, like these men in the early church did. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this reminder of how great your love is for us, um, how you sought us out when we did not and could not seek you, how you demonstrated your love when we were your enemies. Father, I pray that you would help us to express that love, that same love, uh, not only toward you, but toward other people. Lord, help us to love others. Help us to love even those that persecute us, even those that make fun of us. Father, I pray that you would um, uh, give us a desire to engage those around us for the gospel's sake. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.